Well, if you're a guest with us this evening, we are right in the middle of a series on the Psalms. Um, we did this a couple years back, and we've been visiting different genres of Psalms uh, throughout the summer to, to help expand our worship language, to give us some of the... Uh, the words that the psalmists have for every emotion under the sun, extreme joy to extreme sorrow to everything in between. And I don't know about you, for those of you who have been here for a few uh, weeks during this series, but I've been really enjoying the psalms. One, uh, it's obviously forcing me to be in them a little bit more, uh, but also as a preacher, it's forcing me to ask, so why does this matter? Like, why do, would, would people even want to hear a sermon about these? And some of the psalms are really easy, like Psalm 23. Uh, for me, that is just a, kind of a standby psalm. Maybe it was a memory verse for you at some point in your life or something, but it's such a comforting psalm. And then there's good old Psalm 51, David's uh, uh, asking forgiveness after gross sin, basically murder and adultery. And, uh, and I can relate to that, not the murder and adultery part, but needing forgiveness on a regular basis. So for me, those psalms are, are kind of easy. But then there's psalms that are more challenging. Psalms uh, that talk about vengeance against enemies and, and and really getting angry and talking about smashing enemies' kids against rocks, those are tough. Uh, and there's psalms like the psalm we're going to look at this evening, Psalm 37. In scholarly circles, Psalm 37 is known as a wisdom psalm. So think Proverbs set to music. That's kind of what the wisdom psalms are. Uh, and they often contrast two polar opposites. The way of the righteous is this. The way of the wicked is that. And frankly, at first, the wisdom psalms to me come off as a bit preachy, a bit black and white. They don't necessarily always line up with real life. And if, let's face it, if, if the, the psalms were a, a hit list of songs, the, Psalm 37 wouldn't make my top 40 uh, in beauty or artistry or any of those things. But the more I spend time in Psalm 37, the more I've come to appreciate its perspective. And not just the perspective of the psalm, but recognizing that Psalm 37 is actually written by King David near the end of his life. So here's an old man, uh, a king and a follower of God, and all of his perspective on life. And from that angle, I think it gives me uh, great encouragement. So... I'm going to read the psalm, and I, it's, it's very long. It's 40 verses. And I thought, well, we're big, we're big people. We can, uh, you know, we can handle 40 verses, but we may not be able to handle them very well. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask for three volunteers. I've uh, broken the psalm into four parts. I'll read one part just to show I'm a team player. But I need three volunteers to read the other three parts. These are all printed out for you. And you could come up here with me. And say them with me. So come on. Don't be shy. I know you want to take part in reading scripture here. Jeannie, bless you. All right, Tim, I'll read part one. You can read part two. And Jeannie can read part three. And Kim can read part four. You got the shortest one. There you go. All right. Verses one through eleven. Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers, for they, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him also, and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. 
Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of Him who prospers in His way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only leads to evil doing. For evildoers will be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while and the wicked man will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place and he won't be there. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and the needy, to slay those who are upright in conduct. Their sword will enter their own heart, and their bows will be broken. Better is a little with righteous than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord sustains the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their inheritance will be forever. They will not be ashamed in the time of evil, and in the days of famine they will have abundance. But the wicked will perish, and the enemies of the Lord will be like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. The wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is gracious and gives. For those blessed by him will inherit the land, but those cursed by him will be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong, because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. I have been young, and now I am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, or his descendants begging bread. All day long he is gracious and lends, and his descendants are a blessing. Depart from evil and do good, so you will abide forever. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his godly ones. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell on it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked spies upon the righteous and seeks to kill him. The Lord will not leave him in his hand, nor let him be condemned when he is judged. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. I have seen a wicked, violent man spreading himself like a luxuriant tree in its native soil. Then he passed away, and lo, he was no more. I sought for him, but he could not be found. Mark the blameless man, and behold the upright, for the man of peace will have a posterity, but transgressors will be altogether destroyed. The posterity of the wicked will be cut off. But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Lord, thank you for your word. And um, 
so many words in this particular psalm, Lord. We pray that the wisdom of your servant David uh, and your Holy Spirit would find its way into our hearts and our minds and that we might respond in a way that uh, is pleasing to you and gives you glory. Amen. Thank you for volunteering. Thanks. Thanks, Kim. All right. Well, not only is Psalm 37 a wisdom psalm and a long psalm, right? It's also an acrostic psalm. So the idea was David's, I don't know what his idea was. He's saying, okay, I'm going to write a, a, a psalm of God's faithfulness and, 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 and my, the wisdom that I've learned in my life. But I'm going to constrain myself by doing it as an acrostic. So imagine yourself doing that. And every odd line, you had to start the line with the, with the word that started with A. And then this, the third line would be, had to start with the word that starts with B, and then C, and all the way down. So in Hebrew, it's really neat because it's Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, and anyway, I don't want to lose you on there. The reason I mention it is because it makes uh, for a very interesting psalm to outline. Let me, interesting is a euphemism. It makes it very hard to outline because there's not necessarily like a narrative flow to it. It's like David is trying to give us this wisdom in a way that's uh, constrained by that acrostic format. It's really neat how he, how he does it, but it, it also takes uh, a bit to bear to outline this thing. And so what I'm going to do is pick up some of the main themes instead of going verse by verse for 40 verses. And I think you'll be happy about that. So, before we dive into uh, the nuances of Psalm 37, there's one word that we really need to understand uh, in order to understand this psalm. This word occurs six times in Psalm 37, and it is the word land. When David uses the word land, what is he talking about here? Because over and over again, it talks about how the wicked will perish, but the righteous will inherit the land. All right. Well, in David's day, land referred to the promised land, the physical rocks and dirt and trees and lakes and rivers and mountains of the land of Palestine. It was the land promised by God to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and then passed on uh, through the line of David. But more than just geography... The land carried a much fuller meaning. In the Bible, land, the land, connotes peace. Shalom. Shalom. Shalom, of course, is not only personal peace, but also relational wholeness. It is a vision of a whole community, a whole nation, where there's an end to strife, and an end to division, and an end to poverty, and an end to justice. So when you say the righteous will inherit the land, it's the righteous will inherit this peace, this shalom. The land is also a place of rest where borders are no longer under siege, which if you're Israel in the time of David or most of its history, that's a really good thing because you are always got the threat of enemies going. The land represents a place, a home, a context where life is lived in community. But most importantly, the land, the land represents the place where God is present among us. Okay? God dwelling among us. Now, of course, the Jewish idea of land was a mere foreshadowing of something much greater. And Jesus embodies the idea of land in himself. 
And one day, all who put their faith in him will be part of his kingdom. Not just this narrow strip of land in, in, next to the Mediterranean Sea, but wherever uh, faithful are, there the land is. There Jesus will dwell. Now, I think if we are honest, all people long for a state of being in the land. And what I mean by that is we all long for a life of wholeness and abundance and rest and right-relatedness. And Psalm 37 is a psalm that talks about two different paths that people take to find wholeness and abundance and peace. There's the path of the wicked and the path of the righteous. Psalm 37 warns us to stay clear of the path of the wicked. Now, the wicked are described as people who try and gain the land, that's the peace and the abundance and the wholeness part, without the God of the land. Okay, so they want all the benefits of the land without kneeling the knee to the God of the land. They make themselves God and look out for number one. Uh, the wicked seek to achieve peace at the expense of others. They'll walk all over people in order to get their piece of the pie. Maybe it's a pursuit of power or career goals or money or fame or entertainment. But anytime we place those things and our own pleasure above other people, the Bible describes that as wickedness. So we're warned implicitly not to go down the road of wickedness, which I think at a church is pretty straightforward, even though if we're honest, we all struggle with those things. But I mean, I'm not going to belabor the fact that we shouldn't be wicked. Would you be surprised to hear that? No. Okay. But we are also warned not to be envious of the wicked and what the wicked have and the stuff that the wicked get to do. And it's at that point, the do not envy part, where it strikes me at least a little closer to home. It's tempting, um, of course, and easy to say we disagree with the wicked, while at the same time wishing we have what they have. Now, no one would say, I wish my son or daughter would grow up to be a thief, right? I, I don't think you would wish that. Um, but I was thinking about like the kinds of movies that I watch. Like I love the kind of movies like Italian Job and Oceans 11 and 12 and 13 and all those oceans and and all the like Thomas Crown Affair, right? Where you've got like basically a glorified thief who comes out with these amazing schemes and there's usually pretty girls and there's all this technology and they they have to mastermind and you know to round it off a little bit, they they usually are just swindling like another evil person, but. In the end, like, I'm watching this and really loving this thief getting away with it. And what do I like about it is well, a big investment and a lot of risk with a huge return. And they always get away with the gold. And you'd imagine that they're just like, okay, they're 28 years old now living on the beach in the Bahamas with a secret identity or something. Right? I'm still in being a crook. I can't get around that. And how... Pirates got to be so popular. It's such an odd cultural phenomenon. It's like somebody woke up one day and said, I know, let's make a movie and toys and games and Lego sets about people who rob others and rape women and kill and pillage and usually have missing limbs. I want to be one when I grow up. Like, what is that? And we see it in real life, uh, whether it's kids, you know, in an impoverished situation, emulating gangster rappers with 20 pounds of gold jewelry, or whether it's a suburban white kid uh, emulating somebody with multiple vacation homes and um, whatever it is. But it, there's this sense of envy, and the scriptures tell us, do not fret 
about evildoers who seem to be living the good life now. It's funny because in Hebrew that word fret is actually like literally do not get hot. Don't get all fiery. Don't get all worked up. And some of you will remember the old SNL skit where the guy goes into the convenience store and isn't getting good service so he complains and then the clerk says, simmer down now. And then it goes through all the people to, to the manager and they're, simmer down now. Now, come on. Anyone seen that? Come on. Charles, yeah. All right, so simmer down because don't get hot over the wicked. They, they look like they're achieving success, but it's not true. In fact, in this psalm, the wicked are described as plants or even in one point, a, a luxurious tree that seems indestructible, planted by water. And bam, it says it just withers away when God's judgment comes. The Apostle Paul picks up on this idea in Galatians 6, where he says, hey, don't be deceived, right? God will not be mocked. You will reap what you sow. You will reap what you sow. In fact, in Psalm 37, 13, David describes God as the one who laughs and scoffs at the wicked, who think that they're they're getting away with something. It's like when you catch one of your kids and you just watch, like, how long are they going to carry on this behavior not knowing that I'm watching them? It's like, bam, the consequences are going to come. And the wicked think they're getting away with something, but the scriptures remind us over and over again that nobody gets away with anything, you know? That God is watching. He knows us. There will be justice. I'm always weary of interpreting history, especially um, before people are dead and everything and, <laughs> and, and it's all played out. But I wonder if, I wonder if uh, the Bernie Madoff story isn't kind of an illustration of Psalm 37 in a way. Here's a guy who is a billionaire who was on the board of multiple philanthropic organizations. He, he was generous with his money. He it seemed to be doing things the right way. He had uh, you know, multiple condos in famous cities and vacation homes and mansions and all this stuff until the evidence was compiled against him that he had swindled people out of $65 billion dollars. And nobody is envying Bernie Madoff now as he sits in a prison cell, right? So up to this point, we see how Psalm 37 warns us from engaging in wickedness. And maybe more importantly for for most of us, it warns us from envying the wicked. But Psalm 37 does more than just warn us. It also encourages us. It encourages us to place our trust in God, to rest in God, to wait patiently for Him. Verse 11 says, The humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. Jesus Himself quotes this uh, Psalm 37 in His Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek or the humble, for they shall inherit the earth. And I think certainly there's some evidence to this kind of claim. I think the Olympics are a good example. You know, at the Olympics, take uh, gymnastics or swimming, for example. Once you get to the final rounds, you have nothing but lanes or, or, or teams of elite athletes. And what separates this elite athlete from that one might be a mental thing. It could be uh, you know, performance-enhancing drugs, which the wicked sometimes take and get caught for. Uh, or you could just... Maybe work harder or put in more time than the next person. And I like the commercial that um, Ryan Lochte had where he says, you know, I didn't cheat my way to the Olympics, basically. I didn't pay my way to the Olympics. I swam to London, uh, meaning that he worked. I think he won at least one gold medal, right? Uh, maybe, maybe more than that. But 
That seems to be the idea of this psalm, is to do it the right way, and, and God rewards the righteous. And just on a purely practical note, when we are not engaged in, um, in activity of wickedness where we are constantly trying to, to show up the people around us or to just have more and more material possessions or more and more experiences, it frees us up a little bit to a simpler life. To enjoy the small, the small things like a conversation with a friend or being more present with your children maybe or uh, just... You know, I uh, took the kids up to Artist Point on Friday, and um, just, just amazing. Have you been there recently? I mean, absolutely gorgeous. And to be able to take a little bit of time and do that is something that the driven, uh, you know, wicked person who's just out for success and more accolades maybe doesn't uh, appreciate. But I also need to recognize this, that this is a wisdom psalm. This is not hard and fast black and white rules of how life always works. There are times and oftentimes when the righteous suffer and the wicked live fat and happy and die with a smile on their face. And you're like, what's going on there? What about Psalm 37? And this is where we have to let the Bible interpret the Bible. So we're in the book of Psalms. You know what the book right before Psalms is? It's Job. Right? Job is this, for all intents and purposes, a righteous man in almost every category. And yet, for apparently no reason, his family dies. Every material thing is taken from him. His health is taken from him. His friends turn on him. That doesn't match up with Psalm 37. Until the very end, when Job is restored sevenfold. And that brings us back, or maybe it brings us to, what I think is the big idea of Psalm 37. I think Psalm 37 intends to point us to the fact that God is the God of a very long story, of a very big story. And it encourages us to take a long view of history. According to Scripture, God not only created the universe, He has a plan for it, a very good plan in which Jesus is King and all those who place their faith in Him will be rescued into resurrected bodies, eternal bodies in His kingdom, in a land that is unimaginably good. Now, <laughs> let's face it, everyone besides maybe Nathaniel is really horrible at looking into the future. <laughs> Especially planning, uh, you know, tomorrow, let alone a decade into the future. It is hard, I think, it's really hard to look past my own life stage. You know, when you're a child, you're obsessed with, next year my birthday is going to be this. Sophia's already talking about, I'm going to be seven, and then I'm going to be eight, and then just, just be six for a while, dang it. You know, and, and then when you're a teenager, well, you're so obsessed about how you look or how you're perceived, or how you're performing in sports, or how you're doing in school, but you're obsessed with whatever it is that you think you should wake up for in the morning. And you're convinced that nobody else knows anything worth saying to you. <laughs> and then you're in maybe college or graduate school, and it's hard to conceive how that will ever end. But then it does, and you have a career, and you're like, oh my gosh, school is so easy compared to this. As a parent of small children, soon to be three, uh, I have to remind myself 
that life is not always going to be like this. In fact, most of my life, Lord willing, that I stay alive this long, will be with Corey without kids in the house. Lord willing, they move out someday, right? And I live that long. And it's hard for me at this point to imagine not working full time. But with a life expectancy in the U.S., I will almost, could almost be retired as long as I've been alive up to this point. Almost, almost. So Psalm 37 ceases then to be just a good advice psalm of, don't be bad, but be good, you know, taking it like at face value. It becomes a reminder of the good news. The good news of right perspective. And that perspective is that history is God's and he is guiding it to a place that is better than I can imagine. And I'm going to be a part of that history. Whether it you know, comes to conclusion in my lifetime or not. So Psalm 37 encourages us toward four perspectives. First, it encourages us to look back. To take the long view in the opposite direction. We are a now culture. If most of us do a poor job at looking forward in life, we probably do a worse job at looking back. But we need to remember We need to remember, why is it that you are even here this evening? Right? Because at some point, someone invited you, or God rescued you. We need to remember on a regular basis, like, who gave you life? Who gave you faith? How has Jesus rescued you? How has He changed you? We need to remember, what is the story of God in your life? Because I bet if you start thinking about it, he's got a place where he shows up over and over again. What is your life in the story of God? You know, whenever I get overly anxious about what's going on in my life, I like to look back and take stock in what God has done. Uh, this last Tuesday, I took a half-day retreat up at Nooksack Falls, and I like to go where all the signs say, keep out, danger, slippery rock. So... You know, there's that one viewing spot. Well, I go across the bridge, and there's a little trail over there. That, there's this mossy rock right on the other side of the falls. And so if you lean back against that rock, there's a nice little pillow of moss right here. Sometimes the ants go on your neck, but it, it's worth it. And, um, and so I was kind of just feeling overwhelmed, a little bit overwhelmed with the weight of leadership, a little bit overwhelmed with you know family expanding to three kids, and just just felt anxious about a lot of things. And I opened my eyes... And there over the mist of the falls is this beautiful rainbow. And I'm like, whatever, God, just like you. Just like you. Just reminding me of his promise, of his faithfulness. And so I just whipped out the journal and started writing, started taking notes. Like when I was 12, you really helped me get through this difficult time. And I remember that conversation with that youth leader. And when I was 14, I remember uh, what my dad said that so encouraged me. And when I was 16, you know... And I just started taking stock. And it completely changed. It didn't change the fact that life is difficult. But it absolutely gave me faith that because God had been there before, He wasn't going to forsake me now. Right? It's important to look back. And I want to combine that with something else that's been really important in my life. And that is, I try and seek out younger followers of Jesus... 
and older followers of Jesus. Because I need to remember from my younger brothers and sisters that life can be really fun and spontaneous. And living a life with Jesus isn't all your schedule and, you know, making sure that everyone's to places on time. I I need that spontaneity. And I need to talk to my older brothers and sisters in Christ, and I need them to remind me when I'm caught up in my stage of life that it's not always going to be like this. I need to hear, and you guys say it all the time who have walked this further than I have, enjoy your kids now, they grow up so fast. I need to hear from some of my older brothers and sisters, yeah, life is hard right now, there are some challenging aspects. I need to hear that it's worth it to keep up the faith. And I want to encourage you to seek out relationships on either side of your generation or your station in life. And you have to be proactive. Because nobody believes that they, you want, they want to talk to you. I mean, nobody believes that you actually want their knowledge. So let me give you a hint. Younger folks, approach the older folks. And older folks, we want to hear from you, so approach the younger folks. Because we need each other to have a long view in life. Second, if Psalm 37 tells us to look back, it also tells us to look forward. To take a long view of history. To take comfort There's injustice in this world, newsflash, that may not be cleared up before you die. That all the good work that that we strive for, it may not come to a conclusion in your lifetime. But we can take comfort in the fact that God will set all things right. He's writing a very large story, and my life and your life might just be a little episode in it. So let's make sure it's a good one. Now, you may have heard of a guy named Moses, you know, Ten Commandments, let my people go, split the Red Sea, leader of Israel, Moses, that guy. After all that stuff, he never sets foot in the promised land. But he had faith in God, a long view of history. And he's going to set foot in there when he's resurrected. When Jesus sums up all things in himself. Speaking of Jesus, who died on a cross at a young age unjustly. He did so, the Hebrews writer says, for the joy set before him. He endured the cross not because of the immediate satisfaction, but because he had faith in how the story would end. Now, don't be fooled. Taking the long view of history and resting in God doesn't mean falling asleep in God. What I mean is it doesn't mean that we're just to be passive throughout our lives. There are far too many Christians who have such uh, mental lock on the future that they neglect the present. Psalm 37's third encouragement is to invest with a long view of history. In Psalm 37 and scripture as a whole, faith and life are never separated. To trust God is to obey Him. And to obey God has all these implications for how we treat one another. Injustice and death and pain might seem overwhelming. Parts of culture may appear to be crumbling around us. Wars never cease. 
But we are called to invest in the land, in the people, in the social structures. We are called to be salt and light, reflections of God's kingdom now. And the great news is, is that whenever we invest with love in in something that Jesus has called us to do, it is not wasted. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10 tells us that the mystery of God that's revealed in Christ, the mystery of God's long view of history, is that one day, all things will be summed up, made whole, wrapped up in Christ in a better way than we could possibly imagine. Evil will be judged, and the redeemed will be raised to glory. The good will be better. It'll be refined. And the ugly, the deadly, the corrupt, the decayed will be done away with. And the best of all, God's presence will dwell with us for all eternity. The final perspective Psalm 37 gives us is it calls us to align ourselves with one of the two paths, with the righteous or the wicked. We either align ourselves with those who don't trust in God's control over history and live it up at the expense of other people, or we rest in God and trust in Him. Now here's the harsh reality. I don't know anyone, not even David who wrote this psalm, I don't know anyone who has not at some point in their life chosen the wicked path, the path of sin that leads to death. I just don't, there's no one like that. And that's why centuries after Psalm 37 was written, God revealed even more of himself in the person of Jesus. We learn that God's will is that we would believe in his only son who he sent. In fact, the only way for us to be forgiven and made new and made whole is through faith in Jesus. Jesus crucified for us. Jesus resurrected. Jesus reigning. And Jesus invites us to surrender our agendas and our lives and our hang-ups and our envies our pains and our triumphs, all to Him. And when we do that, we find that we are truly alive. Would you pray with me? Thank you so much, Lord, for your word that lays it out, sometimes as we need it in black and white. Lord, we know that the world does not work in black and right. It doesn't seem to follow rules all the time. But you have laid it out in a way that causes us to remember that in the end, you will judge the wicked, rescue the redeemed, and make all things new. Lord, we desperately need your help to live with a long view. Lord, we live in a culture that is constantly telling us, get ours now, live it up now. Who cares about the consequences? And as we read these words and hear them read, Lord, it, it just seems impossible 
For we know all things are possible through you and your power, uh, the power of your spirit. Lord, we pray that you would come and take up residence in us as we surrender to you. Be Lord and Savior and Master over us. Amen.